Hi, this is Tamson Gringer. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on uh, Monday, August 30th, 2021. That's correct. August 30th. And uh, it's uh, two days past the birthday of uh, Sadie Baby. Right. Sadie, uh, uh, who is coming up this weekend. We're going to the tennis tournament, the U.S. Open. So look for us there on Saturday. You excited about that? Yeah, it's a fun time. We'll be a little bit odd. Hopefully the weather will clear out by then and there's all the COVID stuff. But we're vaccinated, so we'll give it a shot. All right. I know you and Sadie like to go to that. Yeah. It's all being a challenge driving there. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it'll be an adventure. So happy birthday, Sadie. And uh, when she comes up, we'll make her a cake. Yes. And celebrate. Yes, we will. And maybe uh, Hazi will sing to her. Maybe. It's, there's a lot of, uh, he has to make a lot of progress in that department between now and, okay. <laughs> now Be- and then. Before we go any further, I feel we uh, should apologize Yeah, because to Dixon and yeah. his family. Yeah, why? Who took our advice to rent Pig. Um, why are we apologizing? Pig's because they hated movie. it. Well, it was a terrible that's, night. That's, that's it. Look, it's not for everybody. Dixon says he liked it. All right, good. But I think he was just being nice. I, I'm apologizing to nobody. Uh, let me make clear. Dick, Pig's a good movie. They uh, walked out on it. In their own home, they, they walked out on it. They missed the good part. Uh, what can I tell you? I, I, I don't get it. We liked it. I'm doubling down. Are we that weird? Uh, I'm not weird. I, you're a different story. But uh, <laughs> I'm not weird, and uh, I continue to endorse it. You know, I will say it's a movie not for everybody. I don't know Dixon's family. I didn't recommend it to Dixon's family. So I don't feel any... But, but I feel like this happens to no, us no, no, often. No, no, no. We see something that I, know who I think is great, and uh, I recommend it to people like crazy, yeah, but, and they come back but this to is me a, screaming. But this is... No. I, I, I don't know experiences where you recommend it to someone and that person watches it and doesn't like it. I can't believe you're that far off. But if you tell Dixon about it and he tells his family, we have no responsibility for that. We don't know his family. It's not a movie for everybody. I knew that. We knew that. But um, No, I've had people attack me in yoga class. Yeah, well, no one attacks me. So we have, we're leading different lives, very different lives. The fact that it's rough in yoga class is no surprise to me. There's a lot of people, a lot of repressed well, hostility there. Exactly. I would never go into that yoga class. It's a rough group. Speaking of rough groups... The Mets. We have to comment on the Mets. Just when you think the Mets can get no worse or do no worse, uh, they come up with something that's completely off the grid. How do they do it? How do they do it? Yesterday, the Mets, who have been sinking like a stone, um, won a game. It was their second game in a row, second win in a row. It's quite an accomplishment. They beat a last place team, the Washington team, but put that aside. They won. Uh, And I happen to notice by accident that uh, one of the players, uh, Francisco Lindor, after doubling with the bases loaded, long after the game was decided, honestly, uh, was celebrating on uh, second base by pointing, putting his hands above his head and pointing his thumbs down. I said, oh, I don't know what that means. It must be a Maybe new thing. Maybe he just saw Pig. Maybe he saw Pig. <laughs> Maybe. I don't, I don't think uh, he, he would. But in any event, didn't think anything of it. After the game, it turns out that uh, that is a gesture that was originated by Javi Baez, the infielder that the Mets acquired from Chicago a couple weeks ago. And he had made the gesture earlier in the game after hitting a home run, the two-run homer. And he explained the gesture after the game to reporters, 
by saying uh, that is that gesture is in response to the fans who have been booing us for the last uh, week or so, the last few games, maybe the last couple of weeks. Uh, and that kind of, you know, these aren't his words, these are mine. Uh, I'm going to put a little better than he did. That kind of negativity actually undermines our efforts. It makes it hard for us to perform. And we're saying to them, you, you shouldn't be booing us. And in a sense, it's us booing them for booing us, right? Uh, this was uh, exactly the wrong thing to say, uh, as you can well imagine. It, met, it, it immediately went viral, mm -hmm. and everybody associated with the franchise went crazy, and all the fans went crazy. Uh, because who is he as a player to say to the fans, uh, you're not entitled to boo? Uh, that's well, a bad form saying, when you boo. you fans. Yeah, he's kind of saying that. I wasn't going to put it that way. He's kind of putting it that way. So I agree with you. I think that's the way a lot of fans interpret it. I sort of interpret it that way. And the reason that you can interpret it that way, you know, there are many ways one might interpret it more favorably or less so. But this is a guy who has no credibility with the fans. He was acquired um, three weeks ago, let's say. He played a couple of games, then sat out with a bad back for 10 days. Then played a few more games. He has hit a few home runs. He has struck out a ton of times. And that's his M.O. He strikes out a lot and he hits some home runs. He's always been considered a little bit of a head case. And perhaps that's why he was available in a trade. And um, But it's not like he's a fan favorite or he's put in a lot of years or anything like that. He has no credibility with fans. None. And so he's probably played, I don't know, four games in front of the home fans. Five. And to the extent that he's been booed, I'm sure he's given them reason to be booed. I mean, nobody strikes out like Javi Baez. And what I mean by that, aside from the number, he does lead the league, I believe. He swings at pitches that uh, you, you, you can barely see. I mean, I don't even know what he, what he thinks he's swinging at. He just, like, closes his eyes and swings. Once in a while, he runs into one, as they like to say. But, uh, you know, there's a lot to boo about. So um, it, what he said uh, really backfired. Unbelievably, and so much so that uh, the Mets president, within, I don't know, 45 minutes on a Sunday night, was compelled to issue a statement saying that the Mets uh, do not countenance such behavior. Uh, we understand he made this statement. The fans are entitled to boo. Uh, we're going to sit down and talk to the players, blah, blah, blah. Which uh, some people said was, you know, thank God somebody said something. Others said, well, it's, you know, too little, too late. And there were others, frankly, who said, gee, he's uh, basically uh, selling out the players. Sandy Olson's not supporting his players. He's not backing them up. There's, you know, there's mixed views on that. Uh, the, the last group is what we call the trade uh, reporters uh, because no <laughs> fan sees it that way. No fan sees it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and Steve Cohen, the owner, who apparently bought much more trouble than it is worth, apparently, now says, he initially put in a humorous uh, post on Twitter saying, uh, gee, I remember the days when the biggest controversy was what color uniforms to wear. Uh, <laughs> then he came out with a later post. He said, look, uh, these are very young guys and sometimes they say the wrong thing. We'll sit down and work it out. Uh, that's a fair thing to say. Uh, unfortunately, Javi Baez in the world of baseball is not that. He's 28 years old. He's not a 22-year-old who just came up. Um, and the bigger problem for the Mets, and I'll get off this subject, is uh, Javi Baez was brought in uh, basically to uh, support to some degree uh, the Mets' most expensive player, Francisco Lindor, 
who was just signed to a 10-year, $310 million contract, and it was performed poorly all year. And he did the thumbs-down gestures, I said, also. And no one cares about Javi Baez. He won't be on the team next year. But Lindor will. And uh, I don't know how it's going to work out with Lindor. That's the issue. That's the issue. So uh, more to come. You'll want to tune in next week to see where we're going. All right. Very exciting. All right. Before we finish with baseball, and I know Tamsin wants to talk baseball as long as possible, the Orioles, as I pointed out to you, uh, won a game under mysterious circumstances the other day. Really? Yes. Very. The Orioles had won, uh, excuse me, had lost 19 games in a row. They're a terrible team. That seems like a lot. Yes, uh, it does seem like a lot. It's uh, it's close to a record. It's an unbelievable, and they've been a bad team for a little while. Uh, and we can go on for why they're a bad team, but I'm not going to bore you with that. But what's interesting is the Orioles found themselves in a situation they lost 19 in a row, and the next game was a game that they could not possibly win on paper because they were, the pitcher was going to be Shohei Otani, the sensation ah, was a yes. hitter and a pitcher, and how they're going to beat Otani. And following that, they would be playing a first-place team in the form of the Tampa Rays. So what did the Orioles do about it? Did they take extra batting practice? No. Did they uh, spend more time in the film room studying Otani to hit? No. They uh, burned Sage in the locker room. Yes, that's what I said. Apparently, the manager came in the next day and he said to one of the players, Trey Mancini, what's going on? Is somebody smoking weird cigarettes in here they shouldn't be smoking? And he said, no, watch this. And there was a guy walking around the locker room burning Sage by everybody's locker. And they did this, if you remember the movie Major League, there was one kind of crazy guy who did this kind of stuff and his help was hitting, but it was to basically banish evil spirits. And so they go, and they, they actually did this. This is their Major League locker in Baltimore, near where you're from. And then, uh, then they played the game later on night, and they fell behind, like by four or five runs. And again, another lost cause. And then a miracle of miracles, they caught up. And, and then they pulled away and won the game. Mm-hmm. And uh, the next night they burned Sage and they won again. So I don't know about how this works. I don't know. All I know is that there was a um, apparently uh, a Twitter, a tweet that said in all caps, nobody beats the Orioles 20 times in a row. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Times says helpfully in a parenthetical, actually the Orioles... In 1988, lost 21 games in a row. So, uh, <laughs> well, let me just say this. Yes, we have a lot of sage in the herb garden. Do we really? Yeah. Well, so if you want to send a bushel over to the Mets, there's no question. That's, that that's it can to, be done. I think that's what they ought to do to at least mask the odor. You want to at least like burn some sage in the TV room here and see if it seeps through the uh, airwaves. Well, maybe we'll get channels we didn't otherwise get. Who knows? I, I, I don't know what it's going to do for us. Metro lost cause. Oh, I'll be curious to see. If I'm the Mets, when they play on Tuesday night, I'm not playing Hobby Bias. He's sitting. All right. Well, we'll see. Got it. Yes. Got it. All right. Let's go on to more important things. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, I think it was last week we reported on, uh, you know, the uh, f- uh, fun uh, Titian show that's up at uh, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Mm-hmm. And the outrage of, uh, or the uh, concern of the New York Times about the subject matter of uh, these uh, Titian uh, paintings mm-hmm. depicting uh, Greek myths. 
Right. And then we ranted a little bit about right. the ridiculousness of that. Uh, well, this but was, the Times was caught up in it. This the was Times all, yeah. was wringing their hands. This is all what the, do we do? the Times what do we do? review. You yeah. know, can we look at this kind of art? Can yes, we appreciate it? Must we look it? away, yeah. And to its credit, uh, the Wall Street Journal did not take that view. The review by uh, Karen Wilkin actually gives it a, pretty much a thumbs up. And I love when she says, um, she describes uh, the... Uh, Gardner Museum as apparently not trusting the power of astonishing works of art or the ability of audiences to take myths thousands of years old in stride, uh, referring to uh, you know, some of the, um, the ancillary yeah. material going with the uh, show. And, uh, you know, um, that's that's funny. I just, uh, you know, the, the whole folly well, of uh, judging these... Uh, Works well, of art. The great lines he has at the bottom of that is that the painting, of course, as you pointed out, uh, the complaint is the fact that it's 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 a rape. And you explained what a rape is and what a rape isn't, and and it's a rape by Zeus, but it's Zeus not even in the form of a man. It's Zeus in the form of a white bull, and you see her last line there. I'm doing this from memory. This we are told reveals the humor in Titian's painting. Is that what you're talking about? No. Maybe that's why the white bull rolls his eyes. There you go. Maybe it's why the white bull rolls his eyes. So that I thought was a great line. Okay. Uh, um, anyway, I mean the the silliness of trying to, right. to of assessing um, you know judging art by our current judging art cultural context. Judging art so weird about myth. That are thousands of years old. I mean, it's, it's insane. No, but, I mean, it's a completely different context, yeah, right. you know. So uh, you wouldn't even do that with art from another culture mm -hmm. in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. You would say, well, we can't make judgments about this. It's right. their culture, right? you know. Uh, but but we're doing that for, right. I, I don't get it. But, uh, but anyway, so um, we'll get off of that and we'll just enjoy the exuberance and fun of uh, Titian's brushwork. Mm. Um, and his appreciation for uh, the human body. Anyway, um, there was an interesting article in the New York Times about uh, what constitutes art sales under duress, mm -hmm. a fight over a cityscape painting bought for Hitler reignites the question. Okay, so um, this is a, a little bit of a complicated story, but it's a story of a... German Jewish department store owner, mm -hmm. okay, um, Max Emden, who left Germany before the war started, uh, before the Nazis took power, and uh, he sells three works of art to um, an art buyer for Hitler, okay, because Hitler had this, uh, you know, dream museum he was planning to be in uh, Austria and uh, was, uh, you know, um, confiscating and buying artworks from all over Europe for that, mm -hmm. okay? Um, he sells these works of art, and uh, um, there were, um, some of them make it back to him uh, after the war. One does not. One painting is uh, mistakenly sent to the Netherlands, thinking it belonged to uh, another um, dealer or collector. And uh, um, he sells that painting, uh, actually. The, the, to, dealer, the dealer sells that painting. Yeah, the, right. um, you know, the Dutch right. 
person, the Dutch, the Dutch dealer owner, slash collector, Moser, yeah. uh, sells it to Samuel Kress, who donates it to the Houston Museum. Right. Okay, in 1961. Right. All right. Um, so there was this huge mistake. Uh, you might you might wondering if Emden had left Germany, why was he selling his works of art to Hitler? And that's a good question. But, uh, you know, the Nazis were trying to prevent capital from leaving Germany. So he had Germany. to pay, yeah. you know, what they call the... the uh, he couldn't get his painting out. The, he, he, so the, Reich, the Reich, Reich flight tax. Yeah. Flight tax. Yeah. Um, so, you have to, uh, so he was raising money to do that yeah. and uh, sells these paintings. Right. Okay. So he he basically sells the paintings uh, to raise funds under what we'll call unfavorable circumstances. So I mean, you've seen the stories of restitution of these works of arts to original owners. Right. Okay. But Houston, the Houston Museum is saying no. Yeah. We're we're not doing it. Right. Okay. And uh, the um, and it's interesting. And you know, um, the head of the Houston Museum is uh, Gary Tintero. Mm-hmm. Who used to be the uh, you know um, used to be with the Met? Yeah, he was a key curator right. at the Met. So uh, you know this is uh, you know no uh, small town. No, no, Houston's a big museum, and yeah. they make a point there that the U.S. museums take a different attitude than the European museums, right? Right, which is curious. Okay, I mean, and and, that... and and there's a whole long story. It's a pretty involved story, to be honest. Yeah. And the it's not that people didn't know the mistake had happened. Yeah, the monuments men, the, yeah. you know, the committee in charge of right. figuring, you know, uh, discovering this art and uh, trying to get it back, um, actually, you know, wrote a letter to the Dutch government yeah. saying, you know. Uh, this mistake was made, you need to get it back to the um, family of the original owners. And apparently the letter kind of slipped through the cracks. But Houston's hanging tough and saying, we, you know, we fear, we we feel we have title to this um, work of art. And they they might. So here's here's the deal. uh, But it doesn't seem polite. No, it's not polite. You, you see in the article, they reference something called the Washington Principles. Did you see that? Yeah. Okay. So what the Washington Principles are, are principles that were, and there's a longer name than Washington Principles, but they're principles that were adopted by some international commission for application to situations like this. Paintings that were actually more specifically confiscated in Germany. I think by the terms of the Washington Principles, they really focus on confiscated art. It may be this a broader application of that. You referred to that at the outset. Yeah. Was this confiscated or not? But under the Washington Principles, the uh, the parties uh, on all sides of transactions are supposed to endeavor to return confiscated art. And they make the point here that, gee, if everybody, including Houston, was interested in pursuing uh, vigorously the Washington Principles, they wouldn't be taking the attitude they were taking. They'd be returning the painting. Here's the problem. The Washington Principles are non-binding. Or put another way, they're binding on nobody. Mm-hmm. And the article even says mm-hmm. that. So how does the, the law deal with it? And apparently this is something that has been litigated. Okay. Now I mentioned to you, oh, I just dropped a piece of paper in here. I mentioned to you that there is a concept in the law called holder in due course that arose in commercial instruments, which is a view 
get a, a commercial instrument that uh, it turns out is tainted, it's based on fraud or something like that, but it changed hands a couple of times and you as the holder in due course have paid full value for it and had no reason to know that in fact this was tainted, you're entitled to keep that. And even if it comes to light that it was tainted, it doesn't make any difference. It's still enforceable. It's still valid from your perspective. In other words, here's the odd thing. It has more value in your hands than it had in the hands of the person who sold it to you. Because they might have known all about the fact that it, there was fraud involved. And they couldn't, they aren't a holder in due course, and they couldn't get full value. But by selling it to you and not telling you anything, you are an innocent party and you're entitled to enforce it. It's a principle. Mm -hmm. Some jurisdictions go for it, some not. All right. So here's where this comes up. There's a case that was involving a painting that was called uh, Seated Woman with, with Bent Leg by Egon Scheele. Sheila, yeah. Sheila, right? Okay. And that was litigated uh, a few years ago, uh, a similar story uh, with a party that ends up buying it who said, I had no idea that there was any bad history to this painting. Mm -hmm. You know, came from Germany, confiscated, whatever. Mm -hmm. Under the law, am I entitled to it? And here's the trick that I didn't fully appreciate. When you have a, a something like this, a transaction like this, that goes back to Germany, it changes hands many times. So if it goes to court, you have a choice of law issue. In this case, it went through, uh, in, in the Schiele, it went through Switzerland and it went through Austria. Mm -hmm. So do you apply Austrian law or do you apply Swiss law? Mm -hmm. Why is that important? Because under uh, Austrian law, you would say it gets returned to the party from whom, uh, who suffered the confiscation. Under Swiss law, they believe in a holder in due course. Okay. And the party has keeps it. And in that case, that was decided in New York, decided with Swiss law and the party kept it. In this case, that would be Houston. There was another case immediately after that uh, having to do with a Picasso painting called A Boy Leading a Horse involving the Museum of Modern Art. And the question, again, Swiss law or in that case, New York law, New York state law. And the federal court in New York decided not Swiss law, New York law. New York law does not go for holder in due course with respect to painting. Yeah. goes the other way. So um, that's what it's all about. It gets very complicated in choice of law because as the Washington principles are not legally binding. So Houston must know something about the law that's applicable and must feel that they're in a strong legal position. Well, apparently Tintero yeah. argues that when the Dutch government... yeah mistakenly returned the painting to Moser yeah. rather than Germany, it nonetheless, under United States law, yeah. conferred good title to Moser. Well, that's the similar and thing of Holder and Moser divorce. sold it to Kress, right. who gave it to Houston. Right, right. But he's saying under United States law. Well, he's just saying under He's not a lawyer. Okay. Okay. But he's saying under the applicable law, that's the way it works. Anyway, so, it, it's funny. On, the, on their website, they were saying for a while... That it had been owned by both the Emden and Moser. Yeah. And then for a while they were saying just Moser. Yeah. And now there's a... Um, look, I, I think... They're struggling. But Steve, they're, they're saying, look, you know, number one, we're not we're not a country. We're not Germany. We're yeah. not Europe. Yeah. Um, we're, we're Houston. Yeah. We're a Houston museum. And uh, we're going to uphold this the way we see it. Well, look, I, I mean, seeing through it, uh, it needs to be pretty clear. That uh, what's going on is that on the one hand, Houston probably does have a good legal claim 
And on the other hand, those Washington principles are, in the view of some parties, compelling. And Houston is just saying, uh, we're, we don't feel compelled by it. It doesn't move us. And you can understand why, given the history of the war, German, not German, European parties, European institutions feel more of a pull to apply the Washington principles, mm-hmm. law notwithstanding, and an American institution doesn't feel that way. That's what it comes down but to. But it is getting down and dirty. Oh, I'm sure. There's okay. a lot of money at stake. All right. Yeah. Uh, the, um, a lawyer from the Houston Museum wrote to a representative of the heirs threatening legal action yeah. if the family did not immediately cease and desist from contacting right. the museum. Well, they wrote him a rough letter, apparently. Uh, uh, yes. Well, apparently, you know, the, a spokeswoman for the museum said its staff members had received inappropriate yeah. and threatening uh, yeah. Uh, communications Look, from the heirs. I'm sure Houston's got the goods in terms of the law. So we'll see how it works out. Usually money changes hands. You hate to see those, uh, you know, fine arts people, though, getting... Well, I'll tell you uh, bad about the Picasso. Uh, the Metropolitan... I mean, the Museum of Modern Art ended up keeping the painting because they wrote a check. And that, oh, yeah. that's, that's the way that goes. Yeah. Well, that's really, uh, I think... What's uh, going on. Yeah. What's going on. Yeah. This is not off in the way a family favorite or yeah. something. Um, so you pointed out a funny article from uh, the book review, the Sunday book review in the New York Times that just had uh, reprints of headlines of book reviews from uh, the early 20th century mm-hmm. in the New York Times. And a lot of them are, are pretty funny. One of them is a good book gone wrong. Another is a um, good book gone wrong. Sundry novels, some worth reading and others not worth the printing. Yeah. Okay. Worthless edition of a poor anthology. Here's one Shaw at his worst. Yeah, and these are not quotes. These are headlines. These are headlines, headlines of, of, the of, the, of the book review. A painstaking but dull book. Yeah. Another one from March tenth, nineteen hundred. Two pathetic books <laughs> well you know so what's the story where people in uh, the wait a minute i have one more yeah. novel or nightmare oh it's great from july 1907 so were people just more plain spoken and because uh, we all you know see book reviews we never see titles like that of book reviews we all no, you know. i mean you see this in reviews uh, in people's reviews uh you know on miscellaneous sites yeah yeah, but, but in know, the New York Times, the, you're not going to see no. it. And here's why. Yeah. Because they didn't use bylines. Right. So they were anonymous. Right. Yeah. But, but you know, I still wonder about that. Don't you think uh, everybody sort of knew no, no. who was writing the reviews? No. I think there's a lot to that. There's a, you know, that's a big issue in book selling generally. Uh, and it doesn't come off as much in reviews as it is in squibs. That's become very controversial. Uh, blurbs. The authors, well-known authors are generally asked by their publisher to put in uh, a positive blurb for someone else's book that's going to appear on the back cover or something like like that. Well, yeah. Yeah. And they say it's become a real problem because people feel compelled to give a positive blurb and they often don't read the book and the book is often bad. And there are people who get miffed. Now, these are people in the literary world. They say, I got stuck reading this book. So-and-so I have such high regard for gave it a positive blurb. And I'm reading this book and it's awful. And I go and I contact my friend who gave it the blurb. Nothing to do with and he the says, subject. And he says, I didn't read the book. What do you want from me? I just gave a blurb. All right. All right. Anyway. Yeah. That's I, the world you live in, honey. 
That's the kind of thing no, no, that's no. going on. Well, th- this is the funny thing. We always like to think that our, you know, our forefathers, yeah. you know, people living a hundred, over a hundred years ago were like polite yeah. and dignified. No, they, and, they were uh, rough and tough. Yeah, they were. Bare knuckle. They're as bad as we are. They were truth tellers. That's what they were. They were truth tellers. You don't know. I mean, some of those mean reviews might have been to for somebody's own personal no, interest. Anyway. No, no, no. I'm sure they were accurate. A vendetta. Yeah. Well, except for the Shaw one. Uh, yeah. All right. So go ahead. You had something on... Uh... Oh, my God. Don't I get any rest here? No. Well, there's a book by the founder of Joe Colombe. The founder of Joe Colombe. The founder of Trader uh, Joe. Trader Joe. It's, about, yeah. it's called Becoming Trader Joe. Yeah. Okay. So Trader Joe was just a play on the um, idea of Trader Vic's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, bars, restaurants, right, right. Uh, whatever. Contiki bars. Contiki yeah. bars. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it just, um, I guess it's sort of interesting if you're interested in uh, the story, if you're a big Trader Joe fan. Okay. And uh, he just describes, uh, you know, some of his, you know, the whole... Uh, uh, development mm-hmm. of the chain and uh, some of his, um, you know, sort of uh, theories about retailing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he, there were one or two funny, interesting points, I thought. Um, number one, he wasn't going for the average Joe. Mm-hmm. He said he's looking for his targeted uh, demographic was overeducated and underpaid Mm -hmm. customers with college degrees who preferred such refinements as whole bean coffee and real maple syrup but could only afford them at a a discount yeah well that's and yeah and that resonates as soon as he i read that i said yeah that's right that's what they do right and um and some interesting little um stories about uh you know his strategies one was Brie in Wisconsin. Wisconsin had no native Brie industry in the 50s, so it neglected to shut off imports. There were no restrictions. Trader Joe's became America's biggest importer of Brie and at one point sold it for less than Velveeta. Well, Velveeta's pretty good, but yeah, uh, yeah. All right, so he, you know, he was wheeling and dealing, mm-hmm. and apparently he did the same thing. He was able to do the same thing with some very excellent wines. Yeah. And uh, he said, I guess his main his main theory about retail was let me. Uh, well, at the end, he said something which I thought was interesting. The fundamental job of a retailer is to buy goods whole, cut right. them in pieces, and sell them. Right. All right. So he's he's just he's really just. Uh, Breaking it down. And uh, he said, I guess the book that influenced him um, actually was Barbara Tuchman's mm-hmm. Chronicle of the First Weeks of World War One, The Guns of August. He says it's the best book on management and mismanagement. The most basic conclusion I drew from her book was that if you adopt a reasonable strategy, as opposed to waiting for an optimum strategy... And stick with it, you will probably succeed. Yeah. All you need is a reasonable. That, that's what strategy. I thought was was the gem in that, and that is, I can tell you that's true of investing. Mm-hmm. People sit around and say, "Is this the right investment? Is this the perfect investment? Is, is this, this the, the right best? time? Is yeah. this the right moment?" And that and that's exactly not the way to invest. You just adopt a reasonable strategy and stick to it. Uh, and he's right about that. Okay, we have a few uh, obituaries. Um, Roger Bear died. 
Uh, Roger Bera is described there as Mr. Ranger. So I, I, you know, the ice hockey team, the New York Rangers, and I grew up watching Roger Bera, as everyone in New York did, uh, who was even half interested in hockey. And they make the point in, in the uh, in the obituary that Roger Bear uh, got a lot of people interested in hockey. It was never a major sport, hockey. It took a while to become a major sport. There was... For New Yorkers? Yeah, for New Yorkers. So so there was football and there was baseball and there was basketball, but was hockey going to be a sport? And there were only six teams in the league, and it was players like Gilbert in a league that was entirely Canadian. All the players were Canadian, and Gilbert was French-Canadian, who sort of uh, caused excitement and attracted a fan base in New York. He was part of the famous gag line, GAG, goal A game, he and Jean Rattel and Vic Hatfield had a line that scored an average of one point every game. Mm-hmm. And the Rangers were perpetual losers, like the Baltimore Orioles. But under Gilbert and Hatfield and Rattel, they became contenders. They never won the Stanley Cup. They, but it was a big deal that they make the playoffs, first of all. People were very excited about that in New York. Even a six-team league, they couldn't make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they pressed it, and they got through a couple of finals, and they lost to Montreal. Uh, they could never get over the top. But uh, he's a very attractive guy, very well liked. Well, I thought it was interesting that I guess the owner was trying to... Was it the owner who had everybody move out to Long Island? Yeah. yeah. All the, all the um, right players and their families to live in Long Island? Be- well, because they to- thought that uh, Manhattan was... Uh, evil. You know, yeah. Evil, but also just you know too many worlds away from... The little Canadian towns they right. came from, so right. they'd be better off there. And Joubert refused. And he, was, he lived in Manhattan. Right, right. He lived the you know New York life, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, and to some extent it paid because he's the one who you know has all the notoriety. Yeah, right? and yet the team that succeeded in New York was the Islanders because all the guys lived on Long Island. So uh, it's hard to know, but for Joubert. Look, he obviously handled himself well. That was his thing. He was a high-class guy. He was very smooth. He was very likable. He was uh, always uh, said the right thing. Uh, and they, they said he didn't speak English growing up. Uh, he was French-Canadian. Had to learn English. But, uh, you know, he still became the hockey ambassador. And they did make the point here that uh, he became a team representative in his last 20, 30 years. He was always, you know, out there. They show his face when they were advertising the Rangers. And he was there when the team won a Stanley Cup, finally, in 1994. It was long past his playing days. And they have a quote from him. He said, that was the greatest experience. Again, he's not a player. A culmination for me, too, he told the Times in 2017. The fans have always had so much passion and compassion for the team. When they were finally rewarded, it was really something to cheer about. And this is, we've come a, a long way to Javi Baez, basically. Uh, from Ron Bear. So, in any event, uh, Ron Bear. Uh, well, speaking of was, hockey, yeah, you know, and you know, a week or two ago, uh, Tony Esposito passed away. Yeah, right. And there was a great story about uh, his first NHL game, where his brother Phil scores on him twice. Yeah. Okay, and he gets home and is, um, and their mom is furious with Phil. Right. Furious with Phil. What are you doing? Right. <laughs> you know, your your brother's first right. game. And he said, don't worry, Ma. You know, he, he did played great. well. He, he did play well. Know, people well. loved him. And you remember... And that's such a mother thing, isn't it? Do you remember the famous Phil Esposito bumper sticker? Um, Jesus saves 
but uh, Phil uh, no, Esposito uh, puts it in on the rebound. Yeah, Jesus saves uh, Esposito scores on the rebound. Okay, it's a bumper sticker, but yeah. Yeah, uh, Tony O was a great guy too. So uh, David Roberts passed away, a fellow I never heard of, but it's apparently he was uh, one of the creators of uh, what we see today as in terms of adventure writing, turned adventure writing into an art. He was a mountain climber. He was apparently a great writer about mountain climbing. Uh, they make the point that some people write books about mountain climbing are great writers and do a little climbing. Some are great climbers who do a little writing. Uh, he was both, and it's quite persuasive here. You know, I don't, I don't know. If there's anything to dwell on in terms of the tales, but it's quite an impressive guy, and quite a legacy. And apparently, um, he was the mentor to John Krakauer, who wrote *Into Thin Air*, was a huge bestseller. And there are many quotes from Krakauer saying that Krakauer uh, sort of was guided by uh, Roberts when, because Krakauer attended Hampshire College, and Roberts was a professor there. And before he knew it. Uh, uh, Roberts was taking groups out on climbing and teaching them about writing, and uh, that was the person that John Krakauer uh, emulated. So uh, he sounds like an amazing climber, and he's apparently a great writer. So I'll have to look into that. David Roberts. David Roberts, right. And you had one more obituary, I think. Right. Well, this is just kind of, a, this guy sounds like a fun guy, Larry Harlow. Yeah. Influential salsa performer and producer. Uh, and... Uh, he was born into a family of musicians, but it's funny because uh, they were Jewish, and uh, he his nickname was El Judio Maravilloso. Which happens to be my nickname, too. <laughs> really? The Marvelous Jew. The Marvelous Jew. And, uh, now, what so you were drawn to this? His mother, he right. was born in uh, Brooklyn in 1939. His mother was an opera singer. Mm -hmm. Okay, His father was a band leader, a bass player, and a band leader who used the stage name Buddy Harlow with an E. Um, his And uh, his... Uh, Larry Harlow's uh, birth name was Lawrence Ira Kahn. Okay. And he began studying the piano when he was five years old. And uh, he um, absorbed musical influences by lingering backstage at Manhattan's nightclub, The Latin Quarter, where he would hang out with Barbara Walters right. because her dad owned the place. So they were both okay. children. They're both, they're both like children. 10 years they're, old. Yeah, they're like 10 years old. And they're seeing all these shows. They saw every show. Dean mm. Martin, Jerry Lewis, Joey Brown, Sophie Tucker. Right. I mean, Sophie Tucker was not family-friendly No, fair. no, no. I do remember. I, I guess it might have been Lou Walters with Barbara Walters' father. And yeah. he owned the Latin Quarter. I remember reading that. Right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so uh, he was actually interested in jazz, but he couldn't break into the jazz world and he knew a little bit about um latin music from hearing it you know coming out of the bodegas when yeah. he's coming out of like the subway etc and so he gets into that he even goes to cuba he you know um gets into afro cuban music and culture and eventually you know he uh does uh, succeed there and uh makes a whole life for himself in latin jazz yeah, you know, salsa, it, really. you know, there's all kinds of listings of uh, tributes and awards and, you know, playing important dates and stuff like that. I mean, it's not a type of music I know a great deal about, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it seems to me he had quite a career. Um, they said there was uh, one thing that uh, got him a certain amount of, uh, um, I guess, 
oomph was uh, a documentary called Our Latin Thing, mm-hmm. which chronicled the performance by the Fania All-Stars yeah. band at the M- Midtown Manhattan nightclub, The Cheetah. And that really um, propelled them yeah, I think into the... Uh, the public. He tried to write a Latin opera, yeah. um, you know, kind of inspired by the rock opera Tommy called Hami. <laughs> but it, it yeah. uh, didn't really go yeah. anywhere. Anyway, he um, uh, he he his name comes up. He seems to have influenced many many people. And uh, he said, uh, when someone comes up to me and, and says, "Thanks for the music. Thanks for the memories. That's worth a million bucks." All right. Uh, all right. So the last story uh, is kind of a sad article. But it's a very striking article, and you brought it to my attention. Um, it's an article by Tom Coughlin uh, called Watching My Wife Slip Away. And it's about him being a caregiver for his wife, who is suffering this neurological disease. Uh, I'm not terribly familiar with it. It's called progressive supranuclear palsy. Well, explain who Tom Coughlin is. Oh, I thought everyone knew. Tom Coughlin was the coach of the uh, New York football giants for a bunch of years. Uh, won two Super Bowls before that, the coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, retired, I'll say, five or six years ago. Uh, and he had uh, the reputation of being a real martinet, a real tough guy, uh, sometimes almost needlessly so. Almost Into in, discipline. Yeah, military and bearing. Yeah. Uh, and certainly had the reputation by the end of uh, being out of touch. Out of touch particularly because of this high-discipline approach in dealing with modern players. And you can see how that wouldn't necessarily be the perfect mix. Some people like Michael Strahan continue to champion that Coughlin did the right thing, did the right job, and got them across the line. Other players, even more modern than Michael Strahan, you know, would have said, I couldn't relate to Tom Coughlin. I don't know what he's talking about. He had rules like you had to be at a meeting five minutes before the meeting. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you got fined. So old school, yeah. right? Old school. And before that, by the way, he's a long-time coach of Boston College. Um, but the article is about uh, his wife. And he, he says sometimes people uh, say, how come, uh, you know, to extent I go to events or anything, I'm not with my wife, and let me explain why. And he goes into the details of her disease, and she's clearly suffering a disease, whereas he describes it. Uh, she was a very personable, very gracious, uh, very vivacious woman. And now she's in a situation where she's sort of withdrawn mentally. Her faculties are quite limited. She can't control herself physically too terribly much. And she requires round-the-clock care. And he's part of the round-the-clock care. And he's watching his wife slipping away. So you get a sense of what the article is like. And well, in the um, online version, yeah. uh, which I saw first, they yeah. had a, a picture of her with him yeah. from a few years ago. Uh, and uh, she was beautiful. Uh, clearly vivacious, uh, and I mean it. It wasn't a zillion years ago; yeah. it was a few years ago, and uh, it was just poignant. It was just heartbreaking to think of the person in that picture losing yeah. uh, all these abilities. Yeah. And uh, you know, his description of his you know life, just trying to uh, deal with this, is uh, heart wrenching. Yeah, his wife. Uh, her name is Judy. Um, And what, uh, I'll just read uh, two sentences here, what he says toward the end of the article. It's kind of interesting how he brings his coaching perspective to this. And he says, I do want the players I coached in college and in the NFL, 
who thought all my crazy ideas about discipline, commitment, and accountability ended when they left the field, to know that that is not the case. The truth is that this is when those qualities matter most. A friend said we don't get to choose our sunset, and that's true. But I am blessed to get to hold Judy's hand through hers. So that's all we have. Um, and uh, we'll be back with you next week. This yeah, is, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhop. The Tamsin and Dan read the paper. See ya.